0: Hello and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica. Do past arms control treaties offer insight about the proposed Iran nuclear agreement. And we are joined today by the author of one of the essays in this issue, Walter Russell Mead, distinguished scholar in American strategy and statesmanship at the Hudson Institute, professor of foreign affairs and humanities at Bard College, and editor at large of the American Interests. Walter, thanks for being with us. Good to be here. So let's start here with a, a thought that has some echoes of what Angelo Cotavilla, one of our other contributors in this issue has said, there's an emphasis in your piece on the fact that we may tend to place too much emphasis on arms control agreements themselves and not enough on the circumstances that shape them. You quote your American interest colleague Adam Garfinkel saying that, quote, no arms control agreement can achieve within the four corners of a document what the parties are unwilling to achieve Outside of them, close quote. Explain that concept a little for our audience.
1: Okay, well, the, the arms control treaties aren't magic documents. Uh, what they, what a good arms control treaty does, a workable one, is it is it codifies an ex, a, a unity of of policy and ideas among the parties who sign it. So, if you know the Russians and the Americans both thought that reducing our missile stockpiles to a certain point was advantageous. If the other side did it in the Cold War, then we would carry that out. But if there, but you can't just sign an agreement where there is no underlying real consensus and expect that agreement to have
0: a lot of force. With that fact in mind, Walter, ha- have the United States and our allies created an atmosphere in regard to Iran that is conducive to this agreement b- being effective?
1: Well, it's hard to say in terms of the technical specifications of the deal. You know, there there are a lot of people arguing that one back and forth. And frankly, um, uh, when I don't know the answer to something, I prefer to say very little. And I don't, I'm not a, I'm not an arms control specialist. Um, I think where they're, you know, in a sense, the, the, the real issue for me here is that there doesn't seem to be any agreement on, Geopolitical rivalry generally in the Persian Gulf area, so that Iran still seems to be pursuing in Syria in Yemen and in some other places um, strategies that are very much a threat to the u s and some of its core allies um, and this this arms control treaty does not uh, limit those activities, and in fact, as a number of scholars have pointed out. By giving Iran access to more economic resources, it may – the actual arms control treaty may exacerbate a geopolitical reality on the ground.
0: Could we have done things over the last few years that that would have changed that, that would have put Iran in a position where they were uh, less assertive, less dominant than they are right now? I
1: think the key um, has always been Syria. Um, that from the standpoint of people in the region where there's this strong sectarian uh, rivalry, even war, between Sunni and Shia, the effect of the U.S. intervention in Iraq was to take what had been Sunni-ruled Iraq and make it a Shia-ruled country, and then it more closely aligned with Iran, especially as the U.S. left Iraq. Um, And that, is seen as a as a major shift in the balance of power in the region, and has had a lot of people worried. The obvious counter to that was would be that in Syria, you have had a a Shia minority, an Al- Alawite minority under Assad ruling a, Sh- a Sunni majority country. When you had the rebellion against Assad, if um, if we had been able to help the rebellion early before everybody was radicalized and so on, take over there. In a sense, there would have been a trade. The Shia get Iraq, where they have a majority. The Sunni get Syria, where they have a majority. And you can see the basis for a lasting balance of power in the region based on that. But as long as Assad is in control in Damas- Damascus, you have you have a regional situation that is That seems to the Sunni profoundly out of balance and also I think to the Iranians offers them the opportunity for a regional
0: hegemony. So is it your view that that window of opportunity is sort of passed in Syria? I mean you mentioned the opportunity to get involved there before people got radicalized. Are we too far down the road now for any American intervention to be profitable?
1: Uh, Well, I think – Uh, you know, I think what happens is the longer we do nothing in Syria, the worse all the alternatives, including the alternative of doing nothing, get. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think we've got the same miserable set of choices we had three years ago. It's just that all of them are even less attractive now than they were then. So uh, at some point, I think we will have to act. But but i I sense a confusion in the Obama administration or, or maybe a plan that that hasn 't fully been revealed that there 's still a hope I think that somehow they can stabilize the region based on a deeper understanding with Iran and with russia, um, and so that is one of the reasons that uh, potentially at least one of the reasons that the u s strategy in syria has been has been pretty much to leave. Assad alone and to concentrate on ISIS in ways that actually in both Iraq and in Syria strengthen the Shia against the Sunni. And, and, and I'm afraid that this this is a policy that creates as many problems as it might hope to solve.
0: The prompt in this issue of Strategica asks if arms control agreements from the past provide us with any real guidance as to the viability of this deal with Iran. How do you answer that question?
1: Uh, well, I think that that um, you know, I look I look at what I think was maybe one of the most successful arms control treaties in history, and that was the Washington Naval Treaty in the early 1920s that limited naval um, uh, buildups by the powers. And while by the 1930s it had become outdated and, and caused problems, it really did limit international competition on the seas in ways that were very beneficial to the United States for quite some time. Uh, And if you look at that, you see that, um, uh, first of all, Washington went into those negotiations from a position of great strength. After World War I, we were beyond doubt the richest country on the planet, and everybody knew that if there was a naval arms race, we would win it. And so uh everyone could see that that a naval buildup at that time was not going to overturn the balance with the u s but that would it would cost you a lot of money so this so an agreement that everybody would keep their forces at a lower level was in everybody's interests, including ours and and also the you know the issues of verifiability and so on were much less complex with big naval construction with the technology of that time. Um, As I look at the situation um, in the Iranian uh, negotiation, I don't see as many parallels as I would like. That is, it's partly because of our our geopolitical um, stance in the region. We are not really in that great of a, a position of strength. Uh, It's interesting that the the defenders of the deal in the Obama administration and elsewhere keep coming back to the point, okay, it's it's not a good deal. It might even be a very bad deal, a flawed deal, but it's the best deal we could get. Uh, If that's actually the case, then that's a sign of just how weak our position was in this. And I think it's it's unlikely when you're in a weak position that you will be able to get a sustainable, workable arms control agreement.
0: Here's a, a somewhat speculative question but nonetheless staying in the world, I think, of informed speculation. What do you reckon the Iranian strategic calculus with this deal is? President Obama has tried to make the argument on occasion that, well, it, it can't be entirely maligned because the hardliners in Tehran don't like this deal either. Best guess on your end on how the Iranians score this out.
1: Well, I, I would just say that if I were a member of the of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard and was advising the supreme leader, I would advise him to take this deal. I would say it's an excellent deal, sir. It um, what it does. Yes, it constrains you a bit on the nuclear end for a while. It, it, but it will make you stronger in the region. And my advice to you is to think that Iran, Iran's strategy for regional hegemony walks on two legs: a nuclear le- leg and a and a conventional geopolitical leg. And it, it. So what you now do is take another step forward in geopolitically in the region, strengthen. You, use some of this money you're going to get from the deal and from the the ending of you know, sanctions. To support Assad, support your other regional clients, stir up trouble, become more powerful in the region. Build up your conventional forces. Then, in whatever time seems good, you'll be far more, you'll even be more able to threaten American interests in the region. Then maybe you think about doing some real cheating on the nuclear deal. At a point where they'll be even more deterred from attacking you than they are now. So... um, you know, if you have any sense that that Iranian strategy is, you know, they don't have to get everything tomorrow in order to reach their goals, but that they've got a little bit of time to work with, Um, it makes all the sense in the world, all the sense in the world to get out from under the sanctions, um, hold back on the nuclear stuff for a while, you know, cheat a bit at the margins, there's nothing, you know, you might as well test them, and so you you do a little bit of strategic cheating here and there. But you know work on on the other elements of your power which are now going to be stronger, and then come back to this nuclear issue, you know, a year, two years, whatever down the road. And the Americans won't if they don't dare attack you now, they certainly won't dare attack you when you're even stronger.
0: L- let me give you the other side of the equation, which oddly enough Maybe harder to piece together, i suppose um, what's the most what's the most charitable interpretation of the administration's position What do you think President Obama thinks he's doing here
1: Well I think um, President obama i think has probably got several calculations going on pretty consistently he's trying to get the United States to reduce its profile and exposure in the Middle East. Uh, You know, in the abstract, I I, I don't see anything wrong with that. I think um, uh, all things, you know, it's a big war on. The U.S. has a lot of calls on its resources. Um, We have not brought a lot of happiness either to ourselves or to anybody else by being intimately involved in Middle East politics. So, you know, he would like to shift back to something like an offshore balancing role where the U.S. isn't on the front line of Middle East issues, but it it, it gets called in, you know, only when there's a real crisis. Um, so I think that's part of his thinking. Another part of his thinking is that he um, believes that that there is a you know that Iran is a more developed and modern society than many of the others in the Middle East, and that if it is open economically and the merchanting some money and young Iranians are, are free to get educated abroad and and international influences are being more strongly felt in Iran, um, more democratic, more open. And I, I think he may be counting on a bit of a generational reaction. You know, the the parents are ultra religious and ultra fanatical. It often happens that the next generation is less interested in, in all that stuff. So Iran can change. I think is part of his calculation. And I think the third element of his calculation is that for President Obama, there is a real difference between that. He tends to, I think, to have a bit of a. A chasm in his thinking that weapons of mass destruction are on one plane, and um, you know, and and they require a different response. And so that even if the other elements of the relationship don't go well, Iran continues to be a troublemaker regionally and doesn't respond to by opening to the U.S. or to the West. Even in that case doing something that takes the nuclear issue off the agenda uh is still of benefit uh to the United States and the West. I, and then finally I think he he was aware that the international coalition behind the sanctions on Iran is not you know is is not ultra strong that in fact the Russians and the Chinese are more interested in ways, even without a nuclear deal, of undermining those sanctions than in promoting them, and that the hunger in Europe for trade with Iran at a time of slow growth, maybe made more extreme by the slowdown in China, is is a real force. And so, and here I think he was right, his bargaining power is not as great as some people would think. So I think all of those
0: considerations went into his thinking there. So final question that I'll put to you, again, kind of a speculative one, but most of the interesting ones are the the upshot here. I did a show with Victor Davis Hanson a few weeks ago where Victor basically came to the conclusion that war is the inevitable consequence of where we now find ourselves on this issue and that the only question now is when. Are you that pessimistic?
1: Uh, words like inevitable tend to make me a little nervous. Um, uh, I The future has an, an almost infinite capacity to surprise. So I don't want to say inevitable, but I do think that unless Iran is ready to give up its regional hegemonic ambitions um, – we are, the US will be faced with a choice between accepting Iran as the sort of supreme arbiter of the Persian Gulf or doing something very vigorous to try to stop it. And the later we wait to try to stop it, the bloodier, more difficult, and riskier our response is going to be.
0: All right. My guest has been Walter Russell Mead. You can read his essay and those by other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting us online at hoover.org slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Walter, thank you for being with us. Glad I could. Thanks. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening.
1: You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hanson.